Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring visibility and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. Today, we are talking to our friend Sandra. Also, in case you missed our big news, we are now part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Another great podcast included on that network who are also new is called The Foyer. Be sure to check them out. You can learn more about Dialogue Podcast Network at dialoguejournal.com. Okay, so we'll just get started. Sandra, would you go ahead and just introduce yourself? I am Sandra Ziegler. Pronouns are she, they. I am married to a lovely wife who came out as binary transgender during this past year, 2020, made it for a very stressful year. I have four lovely children, all of whom are autistic with a measure of other neurodivergence tossed in on top of it. Mm. Most of us are ADHD. I have one child that deals with quite a bit of anxiety issues. We've got a spattering of PTSD tossed in there. So we're a very Mm -hmm. neurodivergent family. Mm -hmm. My personal identity has a lot of A's in it. (laughs) I am autistic. I am agender, autogender. Mm -hmm. I am asexual. I am on the avomantic spectrum as a demisexual. I usually just use queer. (laughs) Just blanket. Fewer words. <laughs> yeah. So I do stay at home with my kids. My wife is in the medical profession. She is a neurologist. Mm. And so we are very fortunate that I am able to stay home with my kids. That's awesome. You guys make a great team, obviously. <laughs> we do what we can. <laughs> my eldest is 18. He is a senior in high school. He is autistic ADHD. My second is 16. She is a sophomore in high school. She is a high masking autistic. She also deals with anxiety, possibly inattentive ADHD, but she's so high masking, it's hard to tell. Hmm. My third is a non-binary child who is turning 15 soon. Mm -hmm. They are a freshman and they are autistic with a combination inattentive and hyperactive ADHD. Mm. My youngest just turned 13 and he is also autistic with hyperactive profile ADHD. He is uh, atypical autistic. That took a long time to get properly diagnosed because his presentation of autism is not what people stereotypically consider autistics to look like. So. Oh, wow. Okay. So house full of teenagers. Yep. (laughs) Fun. (laughs) It's noisy. (laughs) Both my wife and I grew up LDS. Family can trace our roots all the way back to pioneers crossing the plains in covered wagons on both sides of the family. Wow. My wife comes from a half convert, half pioneer stock family. Mm-hmm. The church has been very big part of our growing experience. Okay. 
And I mean, it's still the pandemic, so this has kind of been hard, but are you doing Zoom church? We've been doing church at home just because it's a lot easier for the family. My wife is not particularly interested in the church that has caused a whole lot of trauma and abuse in her life. Mm-hmm. But the children and I still do home church because we live in Utah and we live in Utah County. Mm-hmm. People here don't take COVID seriously. So right. <laughs> we are avoiding public places until we are able to have our family protected. Good. Good for you guys. We're doing the same thing until we get our second dose. We're we're still doing Zoom. Okay. Would you mind telling us what autogender is for people who haven't heard of it before? Yeah. So autogender is a concept that actually, it's even controversial in the autistic community hmm. to say nothing of the LGBTQIA plus community, because some people, they hear autogender and their brain goes, Autism is gender. Mm. Gender is not autism. <laughs> yeah. So so just to say it's spelled A-U-T-I-G-E-N-D-E-R for our listeners. Autogender. Yeah. So autogender is the concept that our experience and our perceptions of gender are so substantially viewed through the filter of our autism that they are not separable. Hmm. So perception of gender and the way that our society uses gender is really a social construct in a lot of ways. Most autistic people either don't comprehend or don't bother with neurotypical social conventions. (laughs) It baffles the heck out of a lot of us. The concept of gender and that because I was born with a vagina instead of a penis is supposed to influence who I am as a person, it boggles my mind. Who I am has nothing to do with my reproductive organs. And as the spouse of a transgender woman who is very much a binary gender, And also my third child is gender fluid. They're under the non-binary umbrella. I understand that there are people that very strongly feel the binary genders. My wife, it completely blows her mind when I try to explain how it feels not feeling a gender. And she can't even begin to comprehend that because she feels her gender so strongly and always has, even when the entire world told her she wasn't supposed to. So there were some studies done that actually show that neurodivergent people, we are far more likely to be gender divergent than neurotypicals. That is believed to be largely because so much of gender is cultural and is Mm. social and is societal. And we don't give a fig about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say all of us, many of us. It doesn't make sense to us. And so I identify as autogender non-binary, largely because of my identity as an autistic person. and 
my gender, my being a gender is tied to it also. I love that explanation. When I first learned that gender is a social construct, I started learning more about it and thinking about it. I'm like, to the point where we say, girls like pink and boys like blue. What is that? What does that even mean? Like, I don't think that anyone could really explain why that is a thing. You know what I mean? When you get down to like, what gender is and what we see it as, it doesn't even really make sense. It's such a social construct that it's like, I don't even really get it. I think this discrepancy is really apparent when you expose yourself to other cultures, including, can I say, autistic culture? Because <laughs> we are yeah. culture. But also when you get out of the U.S. and even get out of Europe and go to countries that are not Western and not white. Like, the ideas of gender are so different there. Like, I've been watching a lot of K-dramas lately, (laughs) and the men cry so much, and I love it. (laughs) Awesome. And I'm just like, this would never happen in a Western TV show. Like, not never, but it, it would happen after, like, two seasons of angst and a man, like, bottling in his emotions, you know? This is not to say that there aren't gender binaries in non-Western cultures, but just that it shows how socially constructed it is, you know? And it's seen as a universal truth. Yeah. It's seen as like, this is what a female person is. This is what a male person is. And there's nothing else. And it's like, obviously, (laughs) there can't be just A and B. People experience so many different things and not just through their experiences, but just innately who they are. Yeah, and... Our church, it's really frustrating as a non-binary church person how married to the binary the church is. Mm -hmm. As it makes it really hard to feel like there's a place for me within the church Mm -hmm. because the choices are Relief Society or priesthood, young women's or young men's. You Mm -hmm. go to the temple and we are separated by gender. And makes you think, how must that feel to intersex people? Mm, Right. How frustrating and how marginalizing that must feel to not have any place within the church. Because you physically, medically, in every way that transphobes try to harp on, do not fit within the binary. As a non-binary person, I get a lot of, oh, it's all just in your head type thing. And they refuse to acknowledge the validity and the realness of my gender as non-gendered. But for intersex people, they don't even have that. It is a medical, physical, indisputable fact that they are neither female nor male. Mm -hmm. I love going to the temple. I love the spirit I feel there. But every time I walk into that room to go to a session, I feel that there is literally no place for me in that room. Because while I may be wearing a dress with a pink card with somebody's name on it, I am not a woman. I am a gender. And there is no seat in that room for me so I make the best of it I can and I go with 
the gender that I was assigned at birth because it's the only option that I have. I, I look forward to the day that that will change because I know that God has a place for me as I am, not as I am told I have to be. Knowing that they do not need me to be someone I'm not to access their love. It hurts to have to be someone I'm not to access the earthly manifestations thereof. Yeah. In things like the temple church. And that is not the act of a loving God. I believe that we are a church of growth. A church that seeks and yearns for further light and knowledge. I mean, it's it's in the temple. It's what we're doing every day. I get knowledge that is promised to us. I just get really impatient sometimes <laughs> waiting for people to be ready for that further light and knowledge. Yep. Yeah. Okay. You already went into a little bit about how all your kids are autistic when you emailed us. You said, quote, every single one of us presents our autisticness differently. Do you want to go into a little bit about what that means in your household? Yeah. You know, when people think autism, they think Rain Man, they think Sheldon Cooper, they think Temperance Brennan, they think Good Doctor. Mm -hmm. They have a very narrow view of what autism or what autistics look like. I'm doing finger quotes around look there. (laughs) People listening can't see that. Really? Turns out we're humans. (laughs) Right. So I am a late identified autistic. I never even heard the word until my eldest was almost two. And my mother said, you might want to consider evaluation for autism. And I went, what's that? So I Googled it and then promptly freaked out. Mm. Because never Google it. (laughs) Oh, Google will lead you astray. (laughs) So we spent almost three years trying to get my son evaluated for autism because he is very much what you would consider a stereotypical, and again, finger quotes around stereotypical autistic, where he wouldn't socialize with other kids in acceptable, finger quotes around acceptable ways. He would do the lining things up. He would fixate on singular things. At that time, it was largely trains. Now it's cars. The language delays the whole nine yards. But he was very affectionate. He'd go up and give hugs and would touch people. And so all the doctors, uh, he can't have autism. More finger quotes there. Mm. No, 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 we are, do not have autism. It's not a handbag. It's not something that we carry around and can pull out at will. We are autistic, just like I am white, just like I am female presenting, just like I am queer. I am autistic. (laughs) So, yeah, don't go around have autism, because if you do that to a vast majority of autistics, we will give you nasty looks. (laughs) Rightfully so. Rightfully so. It's your guys' right to specify which way you identify. The way you describe it too, it totally makes sense. Yeah. I'm not walking around with whiteness. I'm not walking around with United States American. Mm, Yeah, that's (laughs) a good way to put it. A U.S. American. I am white. It's not 
some separate part of me that suddenly poof dropped onto me. Yeah. No, it is an integral part of who we are. You know, it's not something that you go to the the hospital and they cut you open and excise to cure you of. Yeah, talk about curing to autistics and you're going to get an air pull there too. Mm-hmm. It is who we are. It influences every bit of life from the moment we wake up to the moment that we wake up. <laughs> I'm not even saying till the moment we go to bed because it influences in between as well. <laughs> yeah. But with my son, you know, they'd he can't have autism because he's affectionate. Mm. Because of that one thing that didn't fit the stereotype, it took us three years to get a proper diagnosis of him. Mm. And when we were at the diagnosis, every single question the diagnostician would ask would apply to me as much as it would to him. The doctor would, does he flap his hands when he gets excited? I'm, yeah, no more than I do. And you can't see it right now, but I'm flapping my hands as I'm saying this. <laughs> and then my wife would go, yes, he does. Does he engage in repetitive behavior? I'm like, no, no more than I do. Yes, he does. <laughs> and every single question was like that. Every single thing that the diagnostician would ask about him applied to me. And that kind of did the, the light bulb over the head. Could I be autistic? Wow. It was about five years before I started really embracing myself as autistic. And everything I learned about it, every time I learned something new about my son, I go, oh, that makes so much sense. Wow. It was astonishing because after a entire lifetime of hating myself, of thinking I was broken, of thinking that I was a bad human being because I would struggle with all these things in society. All of a sudden, I wasn't broken. I wasn't wrong. What was happening was I was trying to use neurotypical tools for a neurodivergent brain. And there was a woman on Facebook, it's a diary of a mom. She has an autistic daughter as a neurotypical parent and is a very excellent ally. But she posted a thing once that I just, I saw it when I was less confident in my identity as an autistic person. And it talks about how autistics and neurodivergent people, we grow up penguins in a world of sparrows Hmm. and as we are growing up they're trying to make us fly and they're trying to make us sing and they're trying to make us build nests in the trees Hmm. we're trying really really hard to get up that tree so we can build our nest and it turns out wow it doesn't work (laughs) Because we're not sparrows. We're not broken sparrows. Mm. We're penguins. Right. A sparrow couldn't catch a fish. Yeah. But that's what penguins are made to do. They're made to fly underwater, not through the sky. As long as 
you look at autistics as broken sparrows instead of the penguins that we are, that really sounds kind of weird if you take it out of context. <laughs> but uh, if you look at autistics as broken sparrows instead of the penguins that we are, then you're going to break a lot of people and you're going to destroy a lot of people. That is why the average life expectancy for autistics is in our 30s. It's 36. Right. And the suicide rate for autistics is between six to nine times higher than neurotypical peers. And the rate of mental health issues for autistics is through the roof because you take autistics, you take penguins, and you try to force them to be sparrows. And it doesn't work. And I am totally off on a tangent, which is another very autistic thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you explained that excellently. Thank you. Yes. The second diagnosed in my family was my youngest, my other son, because there is a huge difficulty in recognizing and identifying female autistics or assigned female at birth autistics. Mm -hmm. So my youngest was the stark opposite of my eldest, where my eldest had speech delays. My youngest came out of the womb talking, Mm. uh, hyperbolically speaking. Right. <laughs> he will info dump at the drop of a hat. For those unfamiliar, info dump is a term for when they're frequently called special interests. I really hate that term. I prefer passionate interests. Hmm. But many autistics, not all, I don't personally do passionate interests, but most of us, I even say, have topics that just consume us. And we will talk nonstop about that (laughs) until the cows come home. And literally, there was one time my wife was out of town. So my youngest slept the night with me. 30 seconds after waking up, he was talking. I am not even kidding. And he talked for two straight hours. He loves to talk. He loves to communicate. He loves to share things that he is passionate about, which is wonderful Unless you're like me, that loves silence. (laughs) So Mm. my eldest is a lot like me. He talks when he has something to say. My youngest talks nonstop. My youngest, like his elder brother, is very affectionate. He is very outgoing, very much the extrovert. He loves socializing, which very much goes against the stereotype of autistics of being antisocial. We actually tried to get him diagnosed before kindergarten. And we were told that he's obviously on the autism spectrum, but we can't diagnose him as autistic because it's not negatively affecting his life enough. And I'm just going, just because it's not in the way that you expect to see from an autistic child doesn't mean it's not negatively affecting his life. Wow. Just because he doesn't avoid socialization 
doesn't mean that his hyper-socialization isn't negatively affecting his life. And, you know, this goes into the medical versus the social paradigm of disability that you guys talked about. It was splendid. But autism is so pathologized that the different ways of being autistic are ignored and discounted and refused to be acknowledged because the medical paradigm has this incredibly narrow view and this narrow window of what autism should and does look like. And I'm breaking out the finger quotes again. That's heartbreaking that it's well, you're neurodiverse, but you haven't been traumatized enough by a neurotypical world, so we can't diagnose you as autistic yet. Like, what? That's horrifying. There's an autistic advocate. She goes by neurodivergent rebel, Krista Holmans. And I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly, but the reason that a perception of autistic people is framed by our trauma is because there aren't any non-traumatized autistic people. And I read that and I just went, yeah, because even we autism in this household, we autism hard. (laughs) (laughs) And even then, my kids still are dealing with the trauma, even though at home, we're incredibly supportive and adaptive to each person's autism. Society and life is not. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about my elder daughter here. As I mentioned, she is a high masking autistic. Mm-hmm. Getting identified as a female is an uphill battle. She is the last in my family to be identified. I'd suspected it on and off, but she hid it so well because for boys, they act autistic and people just kind of brush it off. With girls, we act autistic and we are shamed and we're punished and we're told to act ladylike. Mm. Autistic females and assigned female at birth have an even harder time with being identified than our autistic male or an assigned male at birth counterparts. Just because society's view and concept of how females and women should be and should behave that is forced upon girls from toddlerhood mm-hmm. makes us hide it and make us mask it and make us pretend that we're not. Wow. So does masking for a female or female assigned at birth become innate or is it a choice like, oh, well, I can't do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, Did she know that she was masking and she felt like she was intentionally changing her behavior or did it just become like instant natural because of how she was trained by society? I can say for certain for her, I tend to lean toward uh, from my observation towards the latter that we, we learn really, really fast that our brains and our way of being are not acceptable. Mm. We are taught that very, very early on. I find it fascinating that people talk about the rigidity and the inability to adapt of autistic people. When if you think about it, we adapt a heck of a lot better than neurotypicals do because we spend our entire lives making ourselves 
into something that we're not. Adapting ourselves to neurotypical expectations. Mm. There's a joke within the autistic community that I see a lot. Just got out of a movie. That's going to be my personality now for the next three weeks. (laughs) Because we have learned to be chameleons. Wow. Lots of us, we have different personas around different people. So it really stinks when we have friends get together from different groups because we have different personas. If I have friends from church and friends from neighborhood, well, before I lived in Utah, now that I'm in Utah, it's the same, but (laughs) (laughs) friends from church and friends from my neighborhood get together That's really difficult because I am a different person based on what the expectations are for those different situations. Wow. And really, those of us who grow up unidentified, a lot of us really become chameleons where we match ourselves to the expectations that are around them because that's the only thing we've ever known. Mm. When I started working to unmask, to peel away the layers that I had built up to make myself socially acceptable. (sighs) Dang it, I hate crying. I still don't know who I am. I have been doing this for five years and I still can't differentiate where the mask stops and where I start in lots of cases. I'm 40 years old now, 41. I just turned 41. I spent 35 years making myself into someone else and five years trying to figure out who I am. And the mask, it consumes you. There's a image by an artist He goes by growing up Adi on social media. It shows him as an autistic person. Best way I can describe it is the black gunk from Venom in Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oozes over you and all that sort of stuff. It shows him pulling this black ooze away, trying to escape the mask that has consumed who you are. And it's so hard Because you have spent an entire life being told that you are broken, that you are not worthy, that no one can like you or accept you unless you pretend to be something that you are not. That your essence, that your soul, that your spirit is so wrong, is so unacceptable that you can never be accepted as who you are. You can only be acceptable when you are being the exact opposite of who your spirit is. It's devastating and it's killing people. Gosh, I have like chills all throughout my body. Thank you for opening up that way. It's heartbreaking because you explained it so well. It's not just like a casual, like, oh, be polite. You know, it's like everything about who you are as a person and as a soul, as a spirit 
has to change in pretty much every situation. You have a safe space in your home, and I'm so glad that you've been able to make that for your family, but I'm sure it's so hard to feel like, okay, now I have to release them in a world that often doesn't accept them. And the hard thing is like, look at the alternative. If neurotypicals just understood autism better and we're just like, oh, okay. It wouldn't even be a hard, difficult thing to create an atmosphere where autistic people can thrive. Yeah, there was a situation. It was a mess. Shortly after the change was announced that we went from the three-hour block to the two-hour block. Mm. Shortly after that, my ward was split. And not only was it split, we went to a different building. Oh, a lot of change. A lot of us, we really thrive off routine, especially those of us that are multiply neurodivergent with autism and ADHD. Having predictable things that helps a lot. So, you know, I'd have, this was my spot during Sunday school. Then I'd go and this was my spot during Relief Society. And I'd always sit in those two seats. Literally, it was to the point, if I walk into Relief Society and someone was in my seat, I'd back out slowly and spend Relief Society in the foyer reading scriptures or something. Mm -hmm. Well, it started off, this was a smaller chapel. So the pews on the side were shorter. So in our old church, we could fit all six of our family in a side pew, and now we couldn't. It would only fit four people. Oh. That threw me off. The pew that we usually sit in won't fit all of us. And so at this point, my brain's going, beep, 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 red flashing lights, warning Will Robinson, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Get through sacrament meeting, and we go into Sunday school, which was in the same room of the building. It was in the cultural hall. But instead of straight lines, it was curved. And there was somebody in my seat. Mm. And there was someone in the seat next to it. And there was someone in the seat behind it. And it was too much. I went into a full-blown meltdown in the middle of church. And my wife, we've been married 18 years now. Mm. Wow. So she knew enough to get me out of there. She escorted me outside where I was leaning up against the building, curled up in a ball, rocking back and forth, sobbing uncontrollably. I had lost all language at that point. I couldn't speak even if I'd wanted to because I have situational mutism. So she's, what do you need from me? What do you need me to do? And I couldn't say anything. Eventually, thank heavens, she's a good woman. She just, do you want me just to keep people away from you? And I'm like, yes. Yeah, like nodding my head frantically as I'm sorry. And so she spent an hour as I'm sitting there rocking and crying and curled up in a ball, just shooing people away. People are, is everything okay? Yes, just leave her alone, leave her alone. Mm -hmm. I was so glad that she was there to do that. I use an analogy for meltdowns. People think meltdowns and they think of it like a temper tantrum. And it's not. So imagine that autistic people are a nuclear reactor. And you've got the nuclear rods in there and you have the water cooling it and you have the people monitoring and things like our routines, coping mechanisms, dims. This is the cooling system for that nuclear reactor. Now, if you're in a nuclear reactor and enough of the pipes that bring the coolant to the nuclear rods get blocked, 
then the people that work there can do everything they can to try to unblock those and get that coolant going. But after you get to a certain point, there is nothing you can do. And the only thing that's going to happen is that nuclear core is going to go into meltdown. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for everybody, but from my observation with myself and with my children, that's how we are. Mm -hmm. And our brains are the nuclear reactor. And we have our coolant, we have everything that over our lifetime we've learned to make ourselves function. But enough goes wrong with all that. Enough things pop up unexpectedly or our routines get thrown off or there's excessive stimulus barraging us. Because one thing lots of people don't know, lots of us, we cannot block out stimulus. I hear every Every single sound, whether I want to or not. I, I feel my genes every second of the day. I never don't feel that. So you put us in a place like a grocery store where there's music, you can hear the lights, you can hear the people talking, and you have 20 conversations from 20 different directions in 20 different volume levels. And you have the squeaky wheel on the cart two aisles over. And you have a coat, which has a tag that's scratching your neck and you're wearing jeans. Is it any surprise that children go into a meltdown? I would challenge any neurotypical person to experience everything that we do and not get overwhelmed. They get overwhelmed and they can block out stuff. Right. A meltdown, it's not something that we choose to do. The kid having a meltdown at the grocery store, it's not because he's being a brat. It's not because she has a bad mother. It is a nuclear meltdown. I think that if we look at it like that, it's a lot easier to be empathetic towards that child screaming in the grocery store aisle instead of telling the mother, Oh, what that child just needs is a good spanking. True story. <laughs> Gosh. I cannot tell you the horrific things that I've had people come up and tell me mm -hmm. because my children were in distress. Wow. So what kind of advice would you give to other parents who have one or more neurodiverse child? First advice, autism does not need therapy. The number one thing that happens, people go to a diagnostician, they say, your, children, your child has autism, put them in ABA, which is behavioral modification. And at this point, all autistics uh, picture me waving my hands over my head like Kermit the Frog going, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, good imagery. Because ABA is abuse. It is abusive. It is conversion therapy for autistic people. It was created by the same person that started gay conversion therapy. It uses similar techniques. And the entire purpose of it is to make a autistic person not autistic. I'm putting the finger quotes around not again. It's not going to work. And the only thing it's going to do is destroy the person. Is it still like 
that's the procedure is once you get the diagnosis, that's what a doctor would recommend the next step is. Wow. It is considered the gold therapy with finger quotes again. I use lots of finger quotes, I'm noticing. <laughs> it's the gold therapy for autism treatment. Mm. It treats us like an illness. There's a lot of people that compare autism to things like cancer. It's like, no, 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 no. Right. Yeah. Hearing a person compare my soul to a malignant tumor that will kill people. Oh my gosh. No. If a child has gross motor issues, then you can put them in occupational therapy, language delays. They can work with a speech therapist. And I'm going to say here, verbal speech is not the only form of communication. There are so many people that are so focused on verbal speech that they don't even consider things like AAC devices, sign language, writing. Seriously, pen and paper, people. Yeah. Nonverbal communication. There's a saying in the autistic community, behavior is communication. Mm. If a child points and goes, oh, oh, that they want something, you know what they want. Mm -hmm. But ABA teaches parents to ignore nonverbal communication until they say the actual words that they insist on them saying. Mm. Wow. Pointing and, and indicating non-verbally that they want a glass of water, the parents are taught not to give them water until they say, water. How is that not abusive? Right, right. There is not a therapy for autism. You can do things like OT and speech and that sort of stuff to encourage communication in whatever way works for the autistic person or muscular issues are not uncommon for autistic people, or hypotension. Oh. So occupational therapy in situations like that are definitely beneficial. But it should be with the purpose of assisting with a specific need instead of to make the child, quote, indistinguishable from their peer and making the penguin into a sparrow. And that's what most autism therapies, that's the point of it. Uh, right. It's not even about the child's needs or what would help them the best. It's what would help the people around them the best. Oh. Yeah. And so when a child's diagnosed, or if you have multiple neurodivergent children in your house, the important thing to do is to take the time to learn what that person needs. For my youngest, he is a sensory seeker. He needs sensory input. Trampoline. He'll <laughs> run up and run into people. Meanwhile, on the other hand, I am sensory adversive. I don't like being touched. I don't like the feeling of things on my skin. I do everything I can to avoid certain sensory input. So tailor what you're doing to the child and their needs because autistics are human and we each have our own likes, needs, difficulties, and our own strengths. And people look at autism like this monolith that every autistic person is exactly the same. And it's so not true. 
there are certain traits that many of us share saying that lowering the lights makes places more autism friendly is true because many of us are photosensitive. Mm. But saying autistics need lower lights, that's not necessarily the case. My four kids, every single one of them experience their autism differently. What we've had to do is just look at each person's needs and make accommodations for each person. In some cases, that's not possible because, for example, my third child has auditory sensitivities, while my eldest does loud auditory stims. He makes noises. And those really conflict with each other. There are some times that I'll say, eldest child, you need to go do that somewhere else. There are other times that I say, third child, you need to go somewhere else. There are some times I say, third child, put on your noise canceling headphones because there's not a whole lot we can do. (laughs) There are some times I say, eldest child, I know that these auditory stims are what you're needing right now, but I really need you to try and redirect to something else because we can't have that right now. It's a give and take, and it's looking at each person individually and what they need and what they don't need and trying to make an atmosphere that is adaptive and is less toxic. (laughs) No matter what happens, there's going to be parts that are difficult. That's life. (laughs) That's so much good information for parents. I'm sure it's a learning curve for neurotypical parents when they have a neurodiverse kid, but I mean, it would be a learning curve no matter what, because autism is so individual and what it can look like for people. Yeah. It's like when people say autism is a spectrum, people think of a number line where you have less autistic on one side and more autistic on the other. No, that's not how it works. It's more sort of like a color wheel with all the gradients of color and tone. Or I've also seen people do it like audio sliders on a mixing board. Oh, yeah, with a lot of different faders. Yeah. Yeah. Some might be up high, some low. And the number one thing that I hear a lot oh, you must be one of those high-functioning autistics. I'm just going, "Mm." it's too bad people can't see my face because I use a lot of facials. (laughs) Yeah, high-functioning, low-functioning. I think one of my favorite responses is, okay, so you must be a low-functioning neurotypical. Uh... (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. That's awesome. (laughs) That's a really good response. People, they look at me and they go, oh, they can function in society, so it's not affecting them. But they don't see the decades of work that have been put into this facade. They don't see the fact that I go home and am curled up on my bed for a half hour recuperating from the necessity of speaking to someone for 30 minutes. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, they see me going around the grocery store with my face mask on, but they don't see me ripping it off my face, hyperventilating as soon as I get to the van and having to spend the rest of the day in bed 
because it caused so much distress and sent me into a meltdown. On the other hand, you have people that are deemed low functioning and they are dehumanized because of that. They are infantized, spoken down to, ignored. This is a big issue for me because you have parents going on YouTube and posting videos of their child covered in human feces or in obvious distress having a meltdown. And you see videos online because they are perceived as not human enough to care because they're low functioning. And parents do it to be like, look, I have a kid with autism and to connect with other parents, but they don't think about the trauma that that can bring to a child and the vulnerability. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you have these parents, oh, my child's low functioning. I am such a martyr. You can now worship me because I go through so much hardship because my low functioning child, what they're doing is harming their child and they are putting their child out permanently for the entire world to see so that they can get a thumbs up for how put upon they are. Right. It's horrific. Those are people with thoughts and likes and dislikes and passions. And just because they aren't able to verbally communicate what those passions might be, or just because they might not be able to use a toilet, they are dehumanized. Right. So there's a lot of different things that you said in there of the advice you would give to parents. What I'm hearing is prioritize needs. Educate yourself on resources to help kids with their needs. Like you said, you have noise canceling headphones for some of your kids. That's so smart. Or I've seen like stimming toys. Like there's physical things that you can get to help them work through environments that aren't friendly to them. And then also treat them with respect and help them in their vulnerable moments, which mm, a parent should do anyway. And it's horrible that a parent would other them. Another level of that is you've intentionally made a safe space in your home for your kids the best way you can, even if their needs conflict at times, despite having your own needs that are sometimes differing from your own kids. Yeah. And there's a saying that I really like, the problem with functioning labels is that high functioning marginalizes a person's struggles and low functioning marginalizes a person's abilities. Mm. You know, it's a box that people are trying to put us in to make us easier for them, but it has nothing to do with us. There's another saying in the autistic community, presume competence. Basically, it's assumed that we can do things unless we tell you otherwise or we demonstrate otherwise. So often, parents of autistic children, they are told by the diagnostician, your child's autistic, they'll never go to school and they'll never be able to make friends and all that sort of stuff. And the parents that ignore those diagnosticians almost always say, yeah, My child's capable of so much more than I was told that they ever would. For example, when we lived in New York City for a year during my wife's training, my eldest was in sixth grade and the entire sixth grade was making a field trip to Philadelphia. 
And my son was super excited to be going with his friends. We'd been to Philadelphia once before, but it was in the middle of the winter. So he's excited to see stuff without freezing to death. <laughs> and then we get a letter from the school saying, because he's autistic, he can't come unless you come with him. And you aren't able to ride the bus, so you have to drive him. Oh my gosh. Without consulting you? Yeah. The other thing was, we're worried that he'll run off from the group. He's never been one to run off. He stays with group. And it, it's a legitimate concern. Quite a few autistic people, they get overwhelmed and they dash. Or they see something and they dash. But Peter's never done that. So I was furious. Wow. A few years later, his sophomore year in high school, one of the classes that he was in had a week-long trip to California. This teacher called me and said, we have these concerns. And I was able to say, I have no concerns whatsoever about my son going on this trip. The school listened to me and believed me instead of like the sixth grade that did not presume competence, his teacher did, and there were no problems. And he had an incredible experience along with his class. Wow, that's huge. So you told us about switching wards briefly and how that was for you guys. Is there any other thing you want to share about your experience with church? So... <sighs> When you say my child is autistic, people make assumptions, which is very frustrating. But the thing that bothers me most, especially for autistic children, is many times people don't know enough to make adaptations and supports like in primary. Have you ever seen an ADHD child try to stay still? <laughs> it doesn't it's work. excruciating <laughs> yeah as a former adhd child i would have my primary teachers tell me sit still look at me stop fiddling you can't sit cross-legged you can't sit on the back of the chair you have to sit perfectly still and be quiet and listen to me talk and that don't work so well <laughs> yeah in lots of places it's full body listening and the finger quotes are popping out again here <laughs> eyes on the teacher hands in your lap feet on the floor that is a torture device y'all <laughs> right you're not even taking in the lesson at that point wow you don't hear a daggum word of what's being said you know it's like when my eldest was diagnosed I was putting so much energy into making eye contact with a diagnostician because I have learned over the years that if I don't, people think I'm not listening to them. So I knew that if I wasn't like staring into her eyeballs, <laughs> why do people do that? I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm paying just as much attention looking at your shoulder. I did not hear a single word of what she said when my son got diagnosed, which probably is a good thing because it meant that we could avoid harmful things that were recommended. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the experts don't listen to autistic people, so they look at us through a neurotypical lens, which is wrong 95% of the time. <laughs> right. But, you know, you're in primary, 
and you're coloring, doodling, or you have a fidget toy and you're looking at the wall while your teacher's talking, I'd be getting so much more out of that. And you cannot convince me for one tiny second that Jesus would have stopped teaching someone because they were sitting on the floor playing with rocks. Think of how he drew in the sand or in the ground when talking to the woman that people were stoning. Yeah. He himself wasn't making eye contact with them. And they're like, what the heck, Jesus? Like, how come you're ignoring us? But I'm yeah. like, he was stimming. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I've never thought yeah. about that. I love that story. <laughs> wow. Honestly, when you think about it, church is really sensory overloading. Mm. The organ playing prelude and hundred people all talking at the same time. After which someone stands up and into a microphone, sometimes so close that you're talking like this. <laughs> followed by the thunderous organ as a hundred voices sing. And then everybody has to be completely silent during the sacrament. <laughs> How is this not an issue for more people? Yeah, wow. There's so many churches that have quiet rooms. It's specifically for parents with young children, but they're splendid for autistic people as well, that they can go in these rooms and still be part of the sacrament meeting. They can move the dial on the volume. And all of these things are things that could benefit neurotypical people as well mm -hmm. but nobody's willing to do it because they're viewed as special accommodations instead of logical accommodations yeah. so you mentioned how having a quiet room can help autistic people at church what other accommodations do you suggest the church make well the first thing i'd love to see the church do is take the hate group off their website yes yeah so for those who don't know disability.churchofjesuschrist.org, the church's website, they have a disability section. They have a list of resources that they say, this is not a group that's supported by the church, but we just offer these as resources to learn more about different disabilities and neurodivergencies. The only link after autism is Autism Speaks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> May their name roast in hell forever. <laughs> it's a group that autistic people have been very clear that they don't support they're harmful to autistic people and yet they're still largely supported by a ton of organizations and groups primary point is to rid the world of us and that is the group that the church links to on their website and i actually wrote to the church i did it through their feedback and i also sent an email saying mm -hmm. autism speaks y'all get rid of that yeah i listed like five or six different autistic-led groups that they could link to instead. The Autism Self-Advocacy is the first one. Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. Yellow Ladybugs. Um, Autism Inclusive Meets. There's so many autistic-led groups that they could link to. Autistic Self-Advocacy Network is probably the one I would do if I were making the choice. But I never heard back. And they still have a literal hate group on their website. It's like linking the KKK on a page for race relations or the Westboro Baptist Church on the gay and Mormon site. Yeah. Essentially yeah. what it is. I'm glad yeah. you said that for our listeners who aren't aware. 
I'm part of several groups that are education groups where non-autistic people can learn from autistic people. And we get so much of that non-autistic people have been taught these things by the diagnostician or that they learned in a college class or that they learned because they were trained as a teacher for disabled kids. And mm -hmm. My wife went through med school. Everything that she was taught about autism was the opposite of what autistic people have been shouting from the rooftops and being silenced. Right. It's so frustrating. It comes back to the nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. right? There's a huge mental incongruence between everything they've been taught and what we're saying is what we want and what we need. And there's some people that can't get past that incongruence. There's some people that they just can't adapt to this new information. And so they leave the groups in a huff because here I am, I went to college in autism studies and I work as an ABA therapist abusing children with the best of intentions. And then they come to these autistic spaces and they hear ABA is abuse. We do not lack empathy, you know, all these things. And it goes 100% against everything that they trained in for all these years. It's pride. Yeah, people don't like to be challenged. It's heartbreaking, yeah, that you would defer to someone who's book smart about an experience rather than someone who's experience smart about an experience, you know? Oh my gosh, come on. So really quick. How, if at all, do your spirituality and beliefs tie into your neurodivergence? One thing with many autistic people, we tend to be very literal. And so honestly, symbolism is really tough for me. Mm. My parents are on a mission at the Harris Temple Visitor Center. Mm. The sister missionaries there have an entire tour to explain symbolism just on the temple and the temple grounds. Hmm. And I'm just going, why can't people just say stuff? <laughs> it makes it hard in a church that is so heavy on symbolism and inferences. I had a serious crisis of faith when I realized that so much of what I've been taught and taken as fact wasn't, was actually symbolic. Mm. I'd gone through the temple two years before I realized that it's all symbolic. <laughs> My brain registered the temple video as an actual telling of what happened. Even though like part of me knew that there was no eternal stenographer taking notes of the Garden of Eden. So that's definitely something that the church, like leadership and just church members can take note of. In the scriptures, it says that Christ, God, speaks to us according to the language that we understand. We just read that in Doctrine and Covenants a couple weeks ago. It's hard when the scriptures were written. I mean, some of them were written hundreds of years ago. Some of them were written thousands of years ago. So obviously, Christ was speaking to a different culture at the time. And yeah. they try to be translated as closely as possible so that it doesn't translate to our language or understanding as closely now. So when we 
have conference talks that are supposed to interpret the scriptures for today and help us understand today, there needs to be more diversity in that to help people who are on varying understandings and varying spirituality to connect with the scriptures better and to connect with the doctrines better. That's huge. I would love to see openly neurodiverse people in church leadership, but it's interesting. As soon as people hear I'm autistic, I stopped getting leadership positions. Completely? Yeah. Wow. I love teaching. I was a a Lee Society teacher before, but it comes back to the presuming competence. Right. As soon as I communicate that I'm autistic, my credibility goes down. Wow. Which is rubbish because I'm a great leader. (laughs) Actually, lots of us are. Because we tend to be so forthright and so enthusiastic about things that we're passionate about that we see something that needs done and we just go do it. We don't bother with the ridiculous social hierarchies and, oh, do you want to do it? Because I can do it if you don't want to do it. Just do it. Start doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And so we get stuff done. We might spend the next two weeks curled up in the fetal position, recuperating, (laughs) but we get stuff done. (laughs) Would that be, so serious question with that. I know you're being really lighthearted, but would it be worth it for you to be in leadership? Or do you think it would interfere with your life so much that it would be too hard? Like, would it be kind of a negotiated? I would need a good support staff. Yeah. Good first and second counselor, right? Yeah. When we lived in New York City, we lived in Queens, our branch was large on paper and tiny in person. Hmm. We had the Relief Society slash Young Women's Presidency, which consisted of the president and me. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I I was very glad that I wasn't the president because that's a lot of stress. But I think that having people that are able to help shoulder the yoke is essential which the church is like set up for like we have first and second counselors we have a system of ministering to others and meeting people's needs but then we still shy away like oh but they're disabled or they're neurodiverse i don't think yeah oh it would be too much you know that's where it comes down to just communicating with the person and seeing their needs because there are some people that would say like yeah no thanks i don't feel comfortable doing that And then there's some people like you that are like, heck yeah, I'm a good leader. Heck yeah, I can do this, you know. I mean, this might come off like as blasphemous to some people, but I'd make a heck of good bishop. (laughs) Yes, get it. (laughs) Be my bishop. Because autistic people, many of us were used to trying to see all sides of everything because we have to, to function in a world that is not made for us. We have to look over every contingency and plan for every possibility. But I'd need someone hiding under my desk, whispering the names of people to me. Because <laughs> there's a term for it. I'm, I learned it as face blindness, but that just stopped using it because it tends towards ableist with a misuse of blindness. Oh, prosopagnosia? Something like that, yeah. It means that everybody looks the same. My ward has about 10 mid-five-foot blonde blue-eyed ladies. Just 10? (laughs) 
like you put them in a lineup and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them to save my life. Wow. Yeah. People pretend like these things are such huge barriers and they're not like it wouldn't be that hard to work around some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Really quickly, if you could tell a neurotypical person one thing about your experience living as an autistic person with autistic kids as a Mormon, what would you express? Like the main takeaway from this conversation. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we make a covenant when we walk into the waters of baptism to support other people, to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to stand as a witness of God at all times and all things and in all places. And that includes people whose brains work differently than yours. And no one has ever been harmed by being neurodiversity friendly. Ever. It hasn't hurt a single person that I know of. But Refusing to be neurodiversity friendly hurts a heck of a lot of people. Every single day. We live in a world that is hostile to everything that we are. That... tries to break us in every way possible. And as Christians, as followers of Christ, as uh, eternal children to our heavenly parents, where our goal is to be like them, we should be doing better. Mm-hmm. We can do better. We can we can step beyond the way that things have always been done. We can step beyond Mormon culture. We can step beyond the expectations that are heaped on anybody that is different to try to conform and be the same. And we can be better and we should be better because if our goal is to be like Christ, we sing about it in church. I'm trying to be like Jesus. We should be better and we should go beyond the heterogeneous everybody is like me attitude that we tend to have in the church and in society to really, really see how being open to neurodiversity can only benefit society and the church if we just are willing to open up and do it. I love that. That was amazing. I 
so glad that we got to talk with you. Thank you so much, Sandra. It really has been wonderful. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. On Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. On patreon.com slash holyhuman. Our email is at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. And we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Head on over to dialoguejournal.com to check out all the content that these amazing creators are contributing to the Mormon intellectual sphere. We also want to thank Mattive for our intro and outro music. We access the song through freesounds.org. We will see you next time.